0: So there are a number of Law firm uh, owners out there who are truly solos, who want to be solos, who are solos by choice. And for all of you and for all of us that started that way and grown, we have probably one person to thank more than anybody else. And she's joining me today, Carolyn Elephant. I am super nerding out having you here. It is so cool to be able to chat with you. Um, I know, I wish I had gone to myshingle.com so much earlier and, and avoided so many of the mistakes that I made day one, but I'm sure that there are hundreds and thousands of lawyers who uh, were smarter than me and got your insight and wisdom. So listen, if you know me and you don't know Carolyn, uh, I've, I I refuse to believe that's the case, but just in case, uh, she's the owner of a national law firm focused on power, power lines, and property. And the creator of myshingle.com, the blog that inspired the launch of thousands of law firms and the author of Solo by Choice, which I think just released its third edition. Mm -hmm. Cool. Awesome. And like, seriously, such a cool person to talk to who has such a wonderful perspective on all these things, because I think there are so many people out there that are just like, grow a firm, be larger, get more cases, hire more people, dominate, crush And that's just not going to be reasonable or true or the most important thing for so many people. And so I love that Carolyn stands out here as probably the go-to expert on the solo by choice, but certainly um, a wonderful person, a wonderful brand, a wonderful advocate for anybody who really wants to have a smaller law firm and do a phenomenal job and live a wonderful life and be there for your clients and just, I love everything that you do. So thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. This is great. This is great. So nice to talk to you.
0: And I will tell you, so our last episode, we had Lori Gonzalez on. So at every episode, we always start with the previous one. And then we go through this episode. We talk about the next one. I think there's a 10-minute conversation between Lori and I raving about you when I was like, oh, in our next episode, she's like, oh my God, Carolyn, yeah, she's wonderful. So um, it doesn't come up that often, but I wanted to highlight it because Lori and I had such a great chat uh, last week where we talked about managing processes and people. So automation, outsourcing, and all those things in between but I am super excited to have this conversation where we're talking about personal satisfaction. We're talking about innovation and diversity, oh my. So Carolyn, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. And just to put in a good word for Lori, Lori is the queen of every topic that you just mentioned that you both talked about. So I'll have to go back and look at that, listen to that episode. I
0: can take credit for one thing. I don't remember what it was. (laughs) I remember I said one thing to her. She's like, that's going in all my future slideshows. And I was like, you can have it, so... (laughs) Um, no, because I'm right there with you. and just we had a cool um, it's a really cool conversation because we talk about a lot of this on the high level and then there's enough of those specific takeaways to give people kind of the where to start. So no matter where you are in the journey of outsourcing, of managing people, of growing, of delegating, of automating, uh, you'll find a ton of wisdom here. So that being said, we've got Carolyn live, so let's uh, let's dive into this. We're taking your questions. If you've got any questions, feel free to drop them. Um, I know I have a bunch of questions as we go through. Our stuff, But I wanted to hear a little bit more about your journey. Like, I know, obviously, my shingle, I know the book, but like, walk me through what led you to start those things.
1: Well, I guess that all dates back to my decision to start my own firm, I had worked for a government agency and for a big law firm. I was told that I had six months notice to find another job because I wasn't partnership track. And to be fair, I I was very upset at the time, but looking back, I was a terrible employee. I didn't want to do stuff for other people. I mean, I I wanted to do things that interested me and I didn't follow up on a lot of my assignments. So I deserved to be shown the door. So I started my own firm really to sort of fill a gap. And I realized over time that It was actually a very good choice. And I often say that I started solo because I didn't have an option, but then I stayed solo or stayed as a law firm owner because by that time I did have um, at least some summer people working for me. I stayed that way because I had children and it was the best option. So after I'd been doing that for a while, um, during the dot-com era, there were a lot of people who were starting websites on like, you know, petfood.com, dogfood.com. And I thought, what about a site that serves solo and small firms? Because at the time, like American law media dominated the news and they really just spoke to large firms and the ABA journal would, to its credit, often have a story here and there about solo and small firm lawyers, but they never really talked about how to get started or people doing different things or the role that solos and smalls play in the legal profession and in in the whole court system in terms of representing consumer interests and in smaller businesses. And so I set out wanting to start a fight site that would be everything solo and small, but yeah. the technology just didn't exist. This was almost 20 years ago. My 20th anniversary is in a month. Hey, so, um, My husband had the idea to use this platform called Slash Code, which was basically a blog, but it was much more complicated than the blogs today. You didn't just push a button, you had to like upload stuff on file transfer protocols and like play with a thousand different uh, controls just to change the color or the shade of the background. So, um, so that was how it started. And I started with a handful of other bloggers who were not looking at blogs as anything entrepreneurial or anything money-making. People were just looking at it as a way to have discourse. And so, I went from having this conception of a site that was going to be money making to something that was just, you know, a way of participating in discourse online. So um, that was how it got to start. And the book grew out of that. There was a um, publishing company that used to, they, they had a line of books that served lawyers who were interested in alternative careers. And they had seen my blog and asked if I wanted to write a book on starting a practice. So um, that was how. I got to that, to that point.
0: And the other thing that I want to echo to, to your credit, that never really occurred to me until, I don't know, I was reading, um, Jim Collins is good to great. And he talks about how many of these businesses did get these like giant nationwide exposure pieces, but it was always like 10, 12, 15 years after they did the thing that made them <laughs> deserving of it. And so when you're talking about, you know, yes, there were these larger firm focused things that would highlight a solo. I feel like it's, Hey, seven years ago, this one solo attorney did this great thing. And now look at the results, whereas like as a true solo, you don't have that time frame to hear, you know, what worked then may not work now or to figure out what's working now in, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. So I love how, you know, myshingle.com, not just the focus, but the expediency of like, this is what smaller firms can be doing right now, 20 years ago, just as relevant on, you know, March 11th of 2020, when COVID hits just as relevant as it is today on the uh, 20th anniversary or a month from the 20th anniversary.
1: Yeah, no, and of course, as you know, things change so quickly now. I mean, now you're looking at turnaround times of literally six months, something that works, especially with something like TikTok or Instagram, where you have these minute to minute algorithms and something that works six months ago may not work anymore, just six months later. So, um, so yeah, so keeping current and staying on top of the new trends is really important.
0: And so we've got kind of our our three topics that personal satisfaction, the innovation and the diversity. So let's just nail those in that order. So from the the personal satisfaction of a solo by choice, kind of walk me through some of the, you know, what can a solo expect from personal satisfaction standpoint?
1: Right. So a, a couple of things. So um, the book is called Solo by Choice. And that's because, you know, most people who start do stay solo. Some people grow, some don't. And there, today, I think what's interesting is there is kind of a different um, definition of solo because you can have a firm that's technically one principal attorney with a team of four or five people behind them. I would still consider that sort of a solo or a small firm. Or you could have a firm that has a couple of, different attorneys working for them. But I guess I consider Solo to be a firm, not necessarily just one attorney doing everything, but an attorney with maybe some sort of team behind them, part-time contract workers or things like that. So in terms of the personal satisfaction aspect of it, when you do run a firm that way, you are really the person in charge. And so um, you can pursue the cases that you want to pursue, come up with the business plan that you want to come up with. You don't have to think as much about long-term employees, partners, or other people. So it's easier to also be nimble. And I think that the firm can really match, um, you know, your personality and your preferences and some of the goals that you might have in in practicing law. And you also typically in that scenario, will continue to practice as opposed to becoming the head of a firm and being more of an administrator, being the business development or the marketing partner, rather than the attorney who's doing the work. And for some lawyers who enjoy practicing law, that's something that they find very beneficial.
0: I thousand percent agree. And I love, I love you, you define the word solo. Cause then I always think it's funny when people are like, well, I'm a true solo. It's just me. So like we we've created this word and now we have like the follow-up Um, To really narrow it in. But I mean, like, look, legalese exists because I was the marketing partner of a (laughs) very small firm and realized I wasn't being a lawyer anyway. So I might as well commit to um, that. And so it's very interesting. You know, I agree with what you're talking about. And I think so many of these entrepreneurial minded, but wanting to be solo lawyers get in these large groups where everyone's like, you got to hire a ton of people and you got to grow and you got to expand. And that's just not the reality for everybody, right?
1: Yeah. And it definitely, like I said, it works It works for some people and some people thrive on that. And some people have that as a talent. Their talent is managing other people and bringing out the best in them and growing a team and a firm culture. And they love that. And you can see them when they're in the zone teaching about it and just like really on it. But I guess there are also other people who get satisfaction a different way. And so you really have to be focused on what satisfaction and success mean to you rather than looking to see what other people do. And the other thing is, is that, you know, in terms of financial remuneration, just because a firm is a solo, you know, with or without a team, it doesn't mean that they're making any more, any less money than a larger firm some large firms are run very poorly. And sometimes it's surprising to learn that the head of a five attorney practice is barely making six figures. So, um, you know, so those are also things to keep in mind is that it doesn't necessarily limit your earnings. And in fact, one of the trends that I wrote about in solo by choice, most recently are books like the, um, Elaine Pofeld, One um, one Person Million Dollar Firm or books like that, um, which talk about how a one person, you know, again, with a team, it's really not the true solo, but it might be one person with, you know, some outsourcing or contract people who are making a million dollars. There's been an increase in that category um, reported on IRS returns. So it's a trend, not just in legal, but in other um, areas of, of business and entrepreneurship.
0: Well, it always cracks me up. So I didn't, I didn't read that book, but I read the one person million dollar business. Oh,
1: the Paul, uh, um, I can't remember who wrote that one. Yeah. But
0: it's so funny because like everybody they interview was like, look, I enjoyed doing this one part of the job, but I had we had to do so many things. Whereas the one business I could really focus on like just shipping artisanal honey and making, you know, like you really get the chance to dial into it. And so, you know, for lawyers, Maybe that's being able to focus on the one practice area, you like, or that one type of case you really want to take. And that really gives you the energy. Um, I just, I love the idea of being able to have that focus from a satisfaction standpoint. Do you have any, like, are there questions that you walk through, have people walk through to figure out if they're right for a solo or a larger firm, or is there a way, like, what's the thought process to help them try and figure out, you know, where they're going to fall in that spectrum?
1: So I think, like I said, I I would say in the majority of cases, most people start solo. So many of the people who have read my book will come back to me a decade later and say, you know, I started out, I read your book. I've got a firm of seven people now. So I think what typically happens is a lot of it, I think, is practice area determinative. I think there are some practice areas that necessarily lend themselves to more of a volume practice um, if you want to grow. Um, so that is possibly, you know, one, one aspect of it. I guess the other part is, is, you know, if you like working with other people, like the management aspects, if giving up, surrendering some of the work that you do on the legal side is something that you would be okay with. Um, I, those are the kinds of things I guess that you would look at, um, if you were trying to make the decision. Um, I think that, the solo practice, the the smaller firm, tends to work better. F- also for like very um, specialized niche areas where you're automatically going to be able to command, you know, a large flat fee or higher hourly rates than um, something where there might be more competition or where the the rates are lower. So you might need to do a little bit more volume to to keep the revenues up. So. like power pipelines and property being a very very specialized. (laughs) No, but it's, it's funny to
0: me because like, look, I, we started a solo, you know, I know in the thousands of lawyers I've talked to, the amount that launched with like any viable amount of money is less than 5%. So there really is no choice uh, in terms of being able to afford to hire anybody. How many people that were like, oh, I grew my firm to 20 people and I hated it. And now I'm back to four and I'm so much happier. Like, I feel like there's that kind of bell curve for so many people were there going back to it?
1: Yeah, no, there are definitely people like that. Um, I think um there's an attorney, Jay Fleischman, who uh was profiled in some article many years ago, and he had grown his firm to about 12 people, and then he was he worked near the World Trade Center, and on 9-11, his office was shut down for like three months, and that was you know, pre pre cloud or anything like that. And so he you know was doing very poorly and after that he just decided to contract back and since then you know he's made more of a conscious decision to stay relatively small so there are people who do expand and i can think of others too who do expand and just decide that it's not for them or they don't want the hassle or they can make just as much money on their own why have the overhead and the worry about all these other people on the payroll when you can just do it yourself with a couple of part timers so do you have any
0: specific guidance or insight that you see yourself giving to a lot of these solos when it comes to the satisfaction, like the most common things they can do or the way they can think about things to maximize that enjoyment of it?
1: Yeah. So one thing I do encourage people to do is, especially people working on their own, is to get help, especially for the things that you can't stand doing. Um, you know, if you don't, if you're not inclined to, um, to get your invoices out, have hire somebody who's going to do that if you like writing blog posts or doing social media but not the editing part or the the last minute stuff or if you get tied up in doing that and then you you know you find you've spent like 70 70 hours you know making your Canva design and you haven't got your work done and stresses you out outsource that to somebody. So even though you're by yourself, I think that one of the best things that lawyers can do for themselves is to outsource. And it's so affordable and it can be done on such a flexible basis that you really don't have the stress that you would have had say 10 or 15 years ago when the only option was to hire a full timer or a part-timer. So um I think that's definitely one thing that does it. And I think the second thing well, is, on, on, before you jump to the second
0: yeah. and you look to everybody listening and watching, this sounds selfish because it is. But because you are the you are the product, you are the company, you are the business, you are the solo, you need to be selfish. You know, if these marketing things, if you're the bottleneck and they're waiting on you and they're not getting out, you're not generating more business. If you're you know, not filing stuff on the case, you're not getting the case pushed forward. If you're not billing, nobody's getting paid. There's no, you know, there's no money for you to spend on anything else. So you really do have to be selfish about it so that you can show up in the right manner for your clients over and over and over again, as you continue on running the firm.
1: Right, exactly. And when you do that, you feel better about yourself and that makes you feel more satisfied with the work that you're doing. So it all kind of, it's like a loop that feeds back to itself. Um, I, I guess the other thing is, is to apply that also on the personal side. I mean, one thing that I sometimes see, especially with women lawyers who are starting out and sometimes with men too, is that when you're starting out, you know w- without a lot of money your partner or your spouse or whoever or your, your even your parents or your siblings are going to pick up the load financially you start to feel guilty so you feel like you always have to do the kid pickup or you've got to you know paint the living room or do things around the house to make up for it which is going to impede you from getting your business off the ground so i think it's really important when you're starting to to make whoever is helping you out or might be supporting you aware that you know they're investing in you when it, by allowing you to do that work and helping to support you as you get started, not feeling like you have to do all of that because that just, it slows people down. They can't, they can't get started when they're tied down to doing more work in the house and, or, or feeling guilty that they're spending too much, too much money on, or, or not bringing in as much money. So um, that's something that I think is important too.
0: Yeah. And even, and to, to jump on that, take it a step further. Like, I think the smartest thing that Instacart did is it will give you the, like, you've saved X number of hours by booking, you know, whatever Instacart shipping orders or uh, grocery orders. And so maybe that's not something on day one, but on day like 45, when you've got enough business coming in, it's like, do I go do the grocery shopping or do I pay, you know, 20, 30% more? for the Instacart thing and then I bill an extra $300 over here so it's like I'm spending, you know, 50 extra dollars to get groceries delivered but I'm billing 300 bucks like there's a way to really maximize a lot of this from an opportunity cost perspective not just from the cost perspective.
1: Right. And that's I think one of the ways to to know that you're working with an entrepreneur as opposed to somebody who doesn't have that mindset because I do have friends who complain about how busy they are. And I say, do the Instacart, hire somebody to haul the junk out of your house. Oh no, it's gonna cost $150. I can't do that. Like, seriously. Well
0: it's funny, we um so like we do personal injury at at the firm that I have with my wife. And we're like, oh, you know, there's inflation on this, there's inflation on that, there's inflation on that. But then I'm like, all right, well let's look at our case like our average case resolution based upon lost wages is whatever it is, you know, 50% over where it was last year with 30% inflation. So like, there's always this way for you as a firm owner to beat whatever pricing structure is going on across the whole community, as long as you are truly focused on doing a better job, providing a better experience for your clients, maximizing the impact you have on all their cases, like all those things uh, become a way for you to beat, you know, whatever the price issues are going on in the country.
1: Oh, exactly. Exactly.
0: All right. So, anything else we we'll want to talk about from personal satisfaction? Because I'm super interested to hear about innovation as a solo.
1: Yeah, I, I think those are the main points uh, that that I want to to cover. But I think the, I don't know if I'd call it selfishness as as you put it, but I you, you but that that is accurate. You do have to be focused on on yourself if you want your firm to succeed.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I know that there's the uh, there's the negative connotation from it, right. but I just like it's. Prior, maybe prioritizes better. Yeah. Like you prioritize yourself through all these things because it's crazy to me. Like, if you're the bottleneck on the marketing stuff, then you're not getting to it to grow, or you're you're forcing yourself to do it, and then you're late on returning things to clients to get their motion out, or to get this edited to them, or if you're not billing, like, how does the client feel when they get a when they don't get a bill for six months? Great, but then when they do, and it's for thirteen thousand dollars instead of you know five hundred to thousand dollars twice a month throughout the intervening time, like you're just, there's there's always going to be a fire, right? So, focus on on hiring experts to put out the fires that you're not great at putting out and preventing from happening again.
1: Right, right.
0: All right. So, let's talk innovation. You know, I know this is, I'm, I'm so excited to hear more and more lawyers get technologically forward. You know, again, I think COVID <laughs> was a huge wake-up call for that. But even since then, like, I haven't seen that many firms kind of backslide. Maybe you have a lot more in-person meetings, but... I haven't heard anybody who's like, we no longer have a case management system again. We're going back to paper (laughs) files, like those kind of things. So talk to me about innovation from a solo standpoint.
1: So here's what's so exciting about that. What people don't realize when you look at the historical context of the legal profession, solos have always, always driven innovation. I mean, starting with something like the contingency fee, that's innovative flat, flat billing. I mean, that's what could be more innovative than figuring out a way for somebody to be able to bring a case and not have to <laughs> not have to pay any money, um, the Bates uh, versus Arizona, the advertising case that was bought by brought by a small firm that wanted to advertise uh, lower rates um, during the internet era, one of the first. Um, Situations involving can spam was from the small immigration firm. It was, I think, a solo immigration attorney who sent out a million messages on a listserv and prompted all kinds of legislation on canned spam. So it was, it was it was maybe overly enthusiastic innovation, but you got to give them credit for at least like thinking about it. And now we're seeing um, solos who are doing things like document automation. Um, I saw today on Bob Ambrosi's website, he wrote about this uh, big firm in California, Wilson Sonsini, that is selling these document templates that people can sort of fill out at the site, you know, for a few hundred dollars a template. And in big law, I guess that's considered innovative. But as I pointed out, solo and small firms have been selling document templates online for seven, eight years now. I mean, they've seen it as an opportunity as people... Um, don't necessarily want to spend as much money on legal services. The rise of entrepreneurship, there's a product that there's a demand for, and so that's something people are looking at. People, I, I, there's there's so much technology that you can use to come up with all kinds of different products and services. I mean, you know, flat fee billing, subscription services, all different ways of changing the delivery mechanism and really diversifying what you do. I mean, when we think about diversity, diversity in practice, I, I mean, in terms of practice areas, we think you have immigration, you have estate planning. What about just like diversity in the types of services you offer? You have high-end estate planning, you have automated documents where somebody can just fill out their name and generate a will. You have something in between where somebody fills it out and maybe speaks to a paralegal in a jurisdiction where they're allowed to do that. So, Um, these are, these are really exciting times in, in legal and solos are always doing it, not just like for show, but because it's just, it's just innate once, once you're out there and you're practicing and you see these opportunities, they just become, um, irresistible. So I think this is, this is exciting and I see it, I see it more and more. And I see people thinking that way when they start out, when people are starting out, like when I do my webinars on starting a practice It used to be the questions are, you know, do I get an office? Do I, what kind of billing service do I use? And those are all important questions, but I'm seeing a lot more questions about like, I have this idea for this new kind of service. How do you think that's going to fly? You know, those kinds of questions. And that is really exciting to me.
0: Yeah. I think like along those lines um, and maybe it's, I don't know if this is my observation bias or not, but it's cool, like I see that there are so many more law firm owners, like creating a specific software that does something that they've always wanted their practice to do that they haven't found done in the right way. Um, and so whether that's the next step of uh, of the innovation from the solo firm or not, I don't know. But it's just so fascinating to me to see how much is out there from, you know, us solo and small firm owners.
1: No, that's true. And it's just enabled by all of these amazing out of the box tools that you can use for so much of this. So you don't even have to, you don't have to know how to code. You don't have to pay somebody thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, it's not, I I will take a little bit of a step back. It's it's not like a 20 second process either as I sometimes am led to believe that I get very frustrated when I can't get my document automation set up in 20 seconds, but, um, but it certainly is less of a learning curve and much less expensive than it was, um, in, in days past. And a lot of these things you couldn't even do previously. So it's, it's, it's really, it's really great to see how that will change the profession and the types of services that are available to people.
0: Well, and I go back to you, you know, you talking about 20 years ago, having to have the file transfer protocol to upload the blog stuff, like imagine (laughs) it's it's just going to keep getting easier. So the more that, you stay on the innovation, but I guess like there, there is a flip side of this, right? Because like at a larger firm, you're like, all right, I have so and so, my chief technology officer. I've got a bunch of paralegals to implement this. So like, what advice do you give that that solo firm owner on bringing in new technology or making the time for it or making sure that they're maximizing? It? Like, where does that come into play?
1: So that that's a really good question. That's one that I struggle with. Personally, in terms of finding the time to do it myself and also looking at people who are struggling with it, I guess what I would like to see, and maybe it's being done informally, I think one of the ways to do that is I I feel like sometimes it feels like there are a thousand different people reinventing the same wheel. Like everybody in Florida practicing family law probably has a similar workflow. So, do you need every single person setting up an individual flow? What I'd like to see are like groups or people who can sort of work together to to get these things done a little bit more um, efficiently and also share the cost. I mean, back in the early days of blogging, what you used to see a lot of were these um, these group blogs, like a group of bankruptcy attorneys got together and 20 of them would blog at this bankruptcy blog that became number one in the search engines because you had 20 people powering it. So similar to that, it would be interesting to see if there were some way to bring together a group of estate planning, immigration, whatever practice areas are similar and see if they, what they could do to develop these things or even take the course, take a course together. I'd also like to see more I know vendors are very good about onboarding, um, and I, well, I mean the programs differ, but onboarding I think is becoming a competitive advantage for um, or selling point for certain practice technology systems. But it would be nice to also see maybe more formal classes, like you know a three three day course on how to. Set up a particular workflow, or taking you through the different things with other other people who are doing it. Sort of the way you right now have, you know, like you can take a course on how to use Word or or something like that. Because it seems like there have to be, there's got to be some more efficient way to to implement this or have a, you know a uniform system. I, I I'm not sure what it is, but something I think about a lot because time is a very real barrier and not everybody wants to spend nights and weekends, you know, figuring out how to automate their documents. Not everybody has the resources to hire a programmer to, to help or get it done faster.
0: Well, and, and to echo that point. So, I mean, that's a lot of what we do at LegalEase, like implementing a lot of these systems for people to get, so you get a copywriter, you get the, um, you get the experience of how often we're going to send these things. You get the experience of we're going to track the right APIs, but it's always so funny when you get the firm owners like but we do things differently here. I'm like, all right, how? They're like, we have a free consultation and then a paid consultation. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. So we're going to take the stuff that we did on this one and take the stuff we did on this one and jam them together and make it so it makes sense to a client. And I got you covered. Right. You know, but like, you're, it's so true, you know? And, and that's there's a beautiful component of that, right? Like you don't want to walk into the doctor's office and get diagnosed with like Jordan Ostroff disease. You want the, we've done this a thousand times. So I love this concept of more solo firm owners getting together to be there for each other, you know not just on the not just on the emotional high, you know highs and lows, but on the actual you know technological implementation stuff. Um, I think that's so smart.
1: Yeah, so I and I think you know I I guess people haven't really uh, necessarily thought that way before and there's always sort of the competitive instinct. but I feel like when even when competitors work together, there's still are advantages to that. I mean, unless you have somebody who's intentionally like stealing your client list or something like that. I mean, that, that's, that's theft, but you know, well, I think maybe, people, maybe won't... not
0: Miami practitioners, maybe not all of you, my, uh, my South Florida born and raised fellow uh, lawyers, but no, I know I, I get what. Yeah. You're saying. So. so what else from the innovation standpoint, what are some of the other, you know, most common issues or most common advice that you find yourself giving?
1: So, I I guess one of the concerns with innovation, of course, is ethics. Um, People are sometimes uh, too concerned about ethical implications and sometimes more concerned than they have to be due to ridiculous ethics regulation rules. So, I guess the first thing that I would say when it comes to ethics of, you know, somebody maybe has some idea for, like a hybrid service with a non-lawyer and they might immediately assume it's fee share um, improper fee sharing I would at least look at the bar rules, see how you have it structured maybe there is some sort of way around around that or with certain it happens more frequently with advertising people always say oh the bar doesn't let you you know say um say something like that on your website and then it turns out that no the it's no such thing. Or even with something like trade names. Trade names have, I guess as of two years ago, um, this law firm HQ Law um, brought a challenge to the prohibition on trade names as a violation of the First Amendment, which of course it is. Obviously, no consumer was ever confused by going to a firm called, you know, Infinity Law. and thinking- what they're going to be in space or something. It's just so it's insane. But people still think that there are bans on trade names. I mean, you know, so you've really got to look at the ethics rules yourself. Don't rely on what other people tell you. Go check out the rules yourself. And the second thing is, is start changing those rules. You know, in Maryland, there was a lack of clarity as to whether you could mark up a contract attorney's fees. It was one of only two jurisdictions in the U.S. that did that. So I asked, I put together a request for an opinion and I sent it to the the grievance, whoever the regulators are in Maryland. And I said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I gave all the economic reasons for why you should be able to mark up um, fees on outsourcing. And they clarified the rule to make very clear that Maryland lawyers can do that. So I think lawyers have to be very proactive too and start changing these ridiculous, stupid rules. I and mean, the fee splitting rule is the worst because it's like, When you pay by a credit card, you're kind of splitting a fee. The bank gets a percentage, you get a percentage, everybody's using credit cards. So does it matter if the fee is split between a platform and you and, you know, leaving aside the idea of whether you should be on a platform or not, but it just, I I don't know who sits on these committees. I really, I'm sorry, (laughs) I don't I don't know, but but I think lawyers should, you know, read the rules themselves and and be proactive and and change them. And I think vendors should be doing that too, quite honestly, especially the vendors who benefit from um, you know, who get financial benefit if these rules are, are being changed.
0: Yeah, I will tell you, I mean, I spend A lot of time with the on the the phone with the uh our our ethics opinion stuff for legalese because I was like, Look, we're going to be automating people's contracts, we are not writing the contract, there is not, there's no overlap there. And they're like, Yeah, okay, as long as you don't write it. So then we had clients be like, I don't have a contract, can you make one for me? And I'm like, No, I actually cannot. Here's my ethics opinion that says I cannot do that for you because Greg is not a lawyer. Like, go find somebody. Um, it's just it's so funny to see. You know but but how much of
1: that is people just trying to use the excuse to
0: not you know put themselves out there or or try to be different
1: that that's ex- that's exactly the reason and that that drives me crazy and you know like i said that's why people It it shouldn't be a hard stop, because you can always change it. And honestly, if lawyers don't change these rules to our advantage, they're going to be changed for us, and they're not going to look very good. And pretty soon, you know, anybody will be able to write a contract, no matter where they are. Lawyers are not going to have a monopoly or control over the legislatures and in all the different states, or the costs are going to become so prohibitive that that's not going to happen. And then we're going to have some kind of system that is not necessarily going to be in the best interest of clients. So...
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with what Utah and Arizona, and I think even DC has some stuff with the yeah. ownership, I'm so, like, right. there are so many lawyers that are terrified of it. And I'm like, it's going to make us be like every other business, you're going to have to actually be tech savvy and look at numbers. And, you know, we can't just hide in this ivory tower. Um, exactly what you said, like, you know, you're just going to eaten up anyway, from the people that are not following the rules from the technology that's jumping in in your place, like whatever that's going to be. So might as well be a part of the change.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right, so anything else before we jump, jump into diversity?
1: Um, no, I think that that hits it. I that definitely hits all the points for for innovation. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to speak about that because I a lot of times the conversation about innovation is just like, oh, do you have a practice management system or are you using are you paperless? And that's like so 10 years ago. <laughs> I
0: had, so we're um, so we're like just south of downtown Orlando. Caddy Corner to Us is a firm that was started in like the 1950s in march of 2020 they're like hey man uh you've got cloud-based software right like what case management do you use and i gave the whole thing and mind you like the the sitting judge of our county was like an intern over there like they have been so ingrained in the community for so long i'm like yeah dude like it's you know here's here's the top five that people are using now here's this And i think they ended up getting something you know like almost customized for them from everything But it was just so funny to me to be like, yeah, that's like a, that's table stakes these days, right? Like you have to be able to the case management system, the cloud-based software, Google Drive or OneDrive or, you know, whatever you're using so you get access to these things. Um, It's been crazy to see how much we've innovated in, you know, two and a half years now.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. So now we're going to talk about diversity. And I have to give you a huge shout out on this one. Um, you posted something, I don't remember where it was. And if I, if if I butcher it, I'm sorry, but, I, but I, I mean this from a positive standpoint, where you were talking about like speaking fees from like a female perspective, that if you don't ask for a fee, people think that you're just doing it as a hobby, you know, and and I, I've always been a man. So I haven't had that issue. <laughs> but it was like, so interesting to hear you share it. And then like the conversation that came out of it, led me to realize there are some people that wish we were still an old boys club but also it was interesting to see how many people were like I never thought about it that way like that were in the same boat as me so I just I love that you were you know sharing a lot of that stuff and obviously that's been a a core of what you've talked about for so long but that was the first one that I was like my mind was just totally blown on how antiquated a lot of this still is.
1: Yeah, no, it was shocking to me. I mean, when I first started, after I wrote my book, I started getting invited for speaking engagements and I was so flattered to just be invited because I felt like I was new to this club where somebody like Jay Foonberg had been speaking for, for decades. And then I started talking to some of my male colleagues who were there and it's sort of like, Oh, I was paid. I mean, they usually would pay for travel. Is like I was paid to to speak. Also, I have an hourly rate, and I was thinking, but they said they don't pay. Oh, they don't really mean that they don't pay, or you know, it just. So, so I didn't even realize it at first, and then it just you know became something that was, was more repeated, and I, I I've heard this from many women, even now, women who are very well known and you know sort of high up in in terms of recognition i mean even in the in the big firm space or the legal ops space it it still it still happens so it's not cool
0: <laughs> no but it but it's interesting to me because like look you have the you have every lawyer conference, right? Where there's like always, there's like a certain number of slots that have been given to somebody who's diversity in some manner. And then you got to have a shark, uh, shark tank person on there now, too. Like <laughs> no. <laughs> we, we get into like these.